Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On the menu for today's show are a discussion of the President's final State of the Union address in the year ahead. Also, another installment of Steve Hess stories. And finally, the author of an article titled Stuck. Before I get to the show, I want to remind you to email your comments or questions to experts who have been on the program to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get them answered in upcoming episodes. My guests here in the studio today are Bill Galston and Sarah Bender, both senior fellows in governance studies and veterans of this podcast. Let's start with a quick assessment from each of you about the uh, president's final State of the Union speech that he gave recently. Maybe one word or phrase that sums it up for you. I'll sneak in two words, triumphant and partisan. Okay. Uh, Bill, how about you? Word or a phrase? A mixed bag. Okay, mixed bag. I think those are good jumping off points for us. Sarah, what did you hear in the speech that was triumphant? Well, the triumphant, maybe that's an exaggeration, but there was a lot of taking credit for the turnaround in the state of the economy, right, to try to point out that despite all the rhetoric on the Republican presidential campaign trail, uh, that the country has turned around from a recession and a financial crisis that the president would like us to remind us what he inherited from a Republican administration. And then partisan. How would you say it was partisan? Partisan, it just seemed the current uh, throughout almost all of the issues or many of the issues he was talking about uh, seemed to be trying to stick it to the Republicans in some way or another. I mean, the one that stood out was the, the point about jailing uh, Wall Street bankers rather mm-hmm. than favoring them, right? Um, and put aside, we didn't seem to jail too many Wall Street bankers after the crisis. Uh, but the, the items like that, um, there were a lot of Democrats standing up and not so many Republicans over the course, which, is, of course, is not that surprising these days. But also after the speech, Speaker Ryan uh, said that uh, President Obama's speech degrades the presidency. And he was referring specifically to Obama's comments uh, that were really directed toward uh, Donald Trump about uh, about partisanship and, and so on. What do you make of a Speaker of the House making that kind of statement? Um, I would have preferred a Speaker to kind of rise above that and to, to focus on the policy issues at stake or even the, the questions of political process that the President raised at the end. Um, but uh, to the Republicans' credit, I thought uh, the governor of South Carolina, her, her response I thought was, to be honest, somewhat amazing uh, and um, uh, almost uh, unbelievably up- <laughs> uplifting to some extent, right? Saying, look, we, we all have a, a hand in the blame here for degrading Americans' views about government. And we've got to take responsibility and turn things around. You don't hear that a lot coming from Republicans these days. I want to come back to that in a minute. Bill, your phrase for the speech is mixed bag. Can you speak to why you call it a mixed bag? I thought that the speech displayed uh, one of the president's most characteristic virtues, namely his analytical ability, you know, which he applied to both the economy and to the foreign sphere. Uh, he was less successful in two other ways, however. First of all, he did a much better job of analyzing uh, Americans' anxieties and fears than he did in actually allaying them. Uh, so I can't imagine that people who are fearful about terrorism would have left the speech substantially left less fearful than they began, and similarly for the economic anxieties. And second, uh, the chief executive has a responsibility to be, to be more than the analyst-in-chief, more than the diagnostician-in-chief. Uh, there also has to be a prescription 
some sort of remedy. Otherwise, the invocation of hope and optimism is somewhat hollow. Well, let's turn to that uh, idea of uh, prescription. Um, Sarah, the, the speech uh, was very light on specific policy proposals that we're used to. Usually we hear a big laundry list of things the president wants the Congress to, to enact. Um, uh, but the president did say that, quote, we will keep pushing for progress on the work that I believe still needs to be done, unquote. But can he get anything through Congress in this last year of his presidency? Well, I think the two things to keep your mind on here, one you just mentioned, right, the, the point of political time, right, where are we in the present cycle? And if we look at how much political capital we think presidents ever have, it's not in year eight, it's, it's in year one, right? It's not even in year five, it's really in year one and two. And so that really, uh, and I think the recognition that he wasn't going to give a laundry list um, type of speech um, is recognition, really, that this is, to some extent, really forward-looking, uh, keeping an eye on what he'd achieved and trying to s sustain it. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is the balance of political power between the two political parties. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want to say that divided government prevents policy change from happening, and certainly the end of 2015 uh, was really, I think, a testament to the party's issues uh, to both parties, particularly Republicans' willingness to think, how do we need to position ourselves in, the, in running for a tough race in 2016? They came up with a number of compromises, that I, some of which I thought they wouldn't, right? No child left behind, for instance. Um, there was a highway transportation bill. I figured they'd patch that one. Uh, they, they did. And obviously the, the budget deal uh, that they'd done earlier in the fall. Um, so we wouldn't say that, 25th, that divided government uh, is the death knell uh, for for major policy change. Uh, and running up to presidential election, sometimes we actually have productive Congresses when they look to the electorate and try to figure out where are we going to position our parties? What Are we the governing party or are we the opposition party? But I don't get a great sense, uh, even just listening to the two party leaders in the House and Senate, that there's an appetite, a shared appetite uh, for governance uh, in 2016. Uh, Bill, in, in a piece that you wrote right after the State of the Union address uh, that I'll, I'll put in the show notes on the site, it's titled An Incomplete Success. Um, you wrote that the president chose uh, transformation over unity as compared to the, the two big uh, ideals that he came into his presidency with. He ended up choosing transformation over unity. What did you mean by that? Uh, what I meant is very simply that the president came into office uh, with two sort of meta promises that he'd made to the American people. Uh, that he would be transformative. That's what the change piece of hope and change refers to. And at the same time, uh, his calling card, what brought him to national attention in the first place, was his famous 2004 address to the Democratic uh, National Convention, the famous not red America, not blue America, but one United States of America. Uh, he presented himself as a healer. And a question that I was asking myself all through his 2008 campaign was, in current circumstances, is he going to be able to do both of these at the same time? And the president has now rendered his own verdict on that question, the answer is no. You know, as he pursued his fundamental commitments, basically Keynesian economic policy, uh, a major expansion of uh, federal authority in, in health care, uh, and in the regulation of the financial system, 
an expansion of regulatory, if not statutory, authority over, over environmental protection and climate change. I could go on and on. But each one of those steps forward towards transformation, as the president understands it, has also entailed an exacerbation of the uh, disunity and polarization that exists in the political system and between the political parties. He made a clean choice. And I respect him for that choice. Uh, but at the same time, he is in no position to deplore the polarization of the American party system uh, because his substantive commitments were commitments at pre on precisely those issues that divided the political parties. And so moving forward on those issues guaranteed that the split between the two political parties would widen. And history will judge whether he made the right choice. Well, that may answer my next uh, question. I'm going to go back to um, Governor Haley. Nick, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley gave the official GOP response. Um, Sarah, you said it was uh, uplifting to some extent. Um, President Obama spoke about trying to get to a better politics. Do you think the admission um, from both the president and both uh, the governor of South Carolina that uh, both sides are somewhat to blame for some of the partisan rancor will help us get to a better politics now or in the future? Well, I sort of assume that the, I mean, to be realistic, the this was the response to the president in the eighth year, and the, right that it would be washed away, right, in the politics and the rhetoric and the messaging that goes on in 2016, right. Not least, of course, because of the um, seeming uh, turmoil within the Republican Party over just uh, who should the standard bearer be, uh, and uh, what does that imply for the other Republicans up and down, uh, up and down the ticket. So uh, I think. Uh, my sense is she was a lone voice, uh, at least a lone public voice, uh, willing to make that type of statement. And at the, on the other hand, it seems so obvious, right, that both parties are to blame that we don't want to put her on too high a pedestal for um, kind of being blunt about the realities of governing today. Um, as we're going to transition here in this discussion to, um, to looking at the future. And as part of that, Bill, and, but in keeping with this theme that we're on, what could possibly bring a better politics into American politics? Can you think of any one or two kinds of things that could happen? First of all, and here I agree with the president, uh, our politics will not improve uh, until the American people demand with a loud voice uh, that uh, an, impro an improvement occur. As long as the political parties are rewarded not with public approval exactly, but with public votes uh, for the status quo. The status quo will, will persist. Nonetheless, within that broad frame of democratic accountability, that is, the people are ultimately responsible for the government they get, although populists deny that and say that the people have been betrayed by their representatives. That is almost never true. George Bernard Shaw <laughs> defined democracy as the only form of government in which the people get exactly what they deserve. And I agree with him, which is one of my many disagreements with this populist BS that's now polluting the landscape. Uh, but moving, moving right along, uh, I do think that the the nominees of the two political parties will, to some extent, define the perimeter of the possible, possible accommodation and possible conflict. Uh, and 
both the Democrats and the Republicans have a choice to make between candidates who pride themselves on confrontation and those whose basic instincts are more conciliatory, whatever they may say, may say in pursuit of the nomination. Well, let's take a quick break there uh, and listen to our third installment of Steve Hess Stories, wherein we'll learn how he became a White House speechwriter at the age of 25. What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up, and when did you think that political science or politics was the path forward? Oh, I had no pathway at all. I can't think of anything like what I wanted to be. When I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a fireman, nothing like that. I wanted to be a happy kid having a good time. I guess uh, uh, I was often picked to be on the student body and that sort of thing, so I must have had some sort of political uh, thoughts in the back of my head, but they never came to the front of my head. Uh, and even by the time uh, I went to college, I can't say what I would have, have been. I, I took political science, and uh, the world opened up in a very, very special way, special in that when I was 25 years old, I was in the White House as a speechwriter to the president. For heaven's sakes, why? Uh, and the answer is, I went to Johns Hopkins, a professor I became close to, Malcolm Boose, who was also, at that time, the, the <clears throat> chairman of the, of the Republican Party in Baltimore, a very political guy. Uh, and um, I went into the Army after graduating, having worked for him. Uh, and most people who work as an intern or otherwise are, are noted for their research, professor's research needs. Actually, it was my writing skills that had, had helped him in a very serious way in the books he was writing. Uh, so I got out of the Army as a private first class uh, in um, Labor Day of 1958. Uh, and he had just been appointed the speechwriter to the president. Uh, and he brought me in as, as the number two speechwriter, which sounds pretty fantastic these days when presidents have eight speechwriters, uh, but we only had two. Uh, and that changed the direction of my life. I, I hadn't expected to be in the White House at 25. People ask me, how do you get to the White House at 25? And I say glibly, you know, be nice to your professor. So after that, I, I was on a different track. And if anything, my life after that was how to get off that track. Uh, you know, after a while, I guess, uh, I was probably the most expensive Republican speechwriter. That's not a wife. I had kids. That wasn't a bad way to earn a living. But it's not what I wanted to be. Hey, I wanted to be a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I didn't even have any degrees uh, to, to, to make me that. Uh, so when I had earned enough money, I gave myself a grant and retired to, to research at the Library of Congress for about two and a half, three years, uh, and wrote a book called uh, America's Political Dynasties. came out 50 years ago. Uh, and in a strange way, that book was written to be my introduction to somebody who at the Brookings Institution who might say, hey, that fellow, we might like to have him uh, on our staff. And now we're back in the studio with Bill and Sarah. Let's go forward now and into the rest of 2016, uh, both in the context of the president's final year in office and the 2016 election, both at the presidential and, and uh, congressional level. Um, Sarah, let me ask you, in terms of House and Senate races, do you think Democrats will run on or away from President Obama's record? 
Well, I think we'll probably see a fair amount of running on the record, right, running on that, that legacy of essentially using government to try to solve public problems, right, at the most, at the most basic level, whether it's uh, reforming Wall Street or whether it's um, health care, uh, health care reform, increasing access to health care. Um, I, I think, the, as always, we will see a fair amount of diversity across these races. Um, in the <clears throat> House, I don't think... Uh, House, House Democrats don't have a lot of hope of picking up, uh, picking up the House. But I think where you'll see the most diversity will be in these Senate Senate races. Although to be honest, uh, the diversity will be across the Republican races, uh, with a fair number of Republicans running in essentially purple, if not blue, states. Um, and that's what I think uh, the majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, was worked on all 2015 was to create a policy record uh, for those contested Republicans and those contested seats to say, look, um, I can speak to the issues uh, in this purple state, and I'm a force for change here. Now, uh, it depends on who the Democrats can put up against that and how much of an Obama record they want to run on uh, and how much they want to look backwards versus looking forwards. It would depend on who's at the head of the Republican ticket. Um, but those Senate races should come down to be pretty interesting down to the wire, my guess is. And the Republicans are defending a lot more of their seats than Democrats are defending their seats, right? For sure. I think it's almost two to one at right. least. So. That's right. Well, Bill, let me uh, ask you uh, about the presidential election. How do you think uh, President Obama plays a role uh, directly and even indirectly in the presidential contest? He plays a major role. First of all, there's a lot of political science to the effect that if you're running, in essence, for the president's third term, uh, that his job approval ratings are going to shape the playing field, either to your advantage or to your disadvantage. And so with President George W. Bush, as weak as he was in 2008, poor John McCain never had much, much of a chance, uh, in my judgment based on the historical record, President Obama now is right on the cusp. His approval rating as of today amounts to an average of about 45 percent. That's not great if you're running as a candidate of his own party to succeed him, but it's not necessarily fatal. It would be great for the nominee of the Democratic Party if it were three, four, or five percentage points higher. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of reason to believe that that's going to happen unless the economy surges. If the president's popularity slides to the very low 40s, I think that would be a huge problem. In addition, uh, to follow up on a question that you posed to Sarah, the president's record is there. It's the 800-pound gorilla at the bar. Uh, I don't think that the Democratic nominee can run away from it, but I don't, I don't think that the presidential nominee can simply run on it either. Uh, so I'd prefer to say that the Democratic nominee is going to have to build on it as artfully as possible. The American people are not sending loud signals that they, they want a continuation of current policies. As a matter of fact, there's a mountain of survey evidence to the contrary. and. Surveys for a very long time now have indicated by a margin of nearly two to one, Americans think that the country is off on the wrong track. It has not always been this way, but it is that way now. And so even if you're a candidate of continuity, essentially, you're going to have to present yourself as a change agent. Because if your message is heard to be steady as we go, 
uh, then I think uh, that's going to be a real problem for the Democratic nominee. Okay. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the L word, legacy. Obama is still the president. He's got a year to go, but already uh, uh, people are trying to figure out how his presidency will be remembered um, for good or for bad. Um, could each of you offer just some thoughts on, on what you think maybe the history writers are going to start out saying a year from now, if not now? Sarah? So I think in the in the longer term, uh, one has to think of the Obama administration as the, the one that cleaned up uh, from the economic messes uh, that brought on the worst financial crisis since, since the Depression, right? I think in, in the bigger, broader picture, that's what the administration will be credited for. Now, um, well, I think presumably they'll also be credited for, depending on what happens to it, uh, in credit for the Obamacare um, expansion of health care. Now, as uh, Bill suggested earlier on, right, it's a kind of double-edged sword there, right, because you don't get, in today's partisan era, you don't get these big, broad policy gains without turning off half, <laughs> half the electorate. And so my hunch is that uh, not the long term, but the short term, that's going uh, to slightly diminish how we think of uh, the policy gains. Um, and then there's a whole area of policy that I, I don't, have not have the expertise to talk about, but the question of the security of the United States and the rise of terrorism abroad. And um, you know, that's one thing that Obama spent his time on uh, during the State of the Union, saying, look, uh, we, we shouldn't be fearful. Uh, that's, not, that's not the position of our country today in terms of absolute reality. Um, but those issues will certainly um, come to the fore in any evaluation of him. Bill, what do you think? Well, first of all, his legacy will be shaped very substantially by the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. And I say that for two reasons. Reason number one is that a successful two-term presidency is ratified by the supportive vote of the American people in the following presidential election. And if a Republican were to take over, I think to some extent that would be seen to be a public repudiation of the Obama era. And secondly, a lot of his policy accomplishments are vulnerable to reversal because I see no scenario where a Republican wins the presidency without the Republicans holding the Senate and the House. So if the Republican wins, the Republican president for two years anyway will enjoy the luxury of a unified government under Republican control. And under those circumstances, I think it is very likely that Republicans would use the famous reconciliation process. It's a, you know, it's a, there's only one bullet in the gun. They can only pull the trigger once, and I am convinced that they would pull that trigger to repeal substantial portions of the Affordable Care Act which would be a really big blow to the president's legacy. In addition, a lot of the legacy has been secured through executive action, including international agreements that were defined as non-treaties so as not to require Senate ratification. And those agreements, too, are vulnerable to changes of the orientation of the new chief executive. Uh, if a Democrat is elected, uh, not only will those policy changes be preserved, but also I think it will be seen as, uh, as the ratification of a broader shift 
in the nature of the electorate, in the shape of the presidential majority, and this new coalition that the President Obama created in 2008 will be seen as a more or less permanent feature of the American political landscape, and that would be a big deal, too. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me today. You can, learn, you can learn more about the State of the Union analysis and what's happening with the 2016 election on our website at brookings.edu. And now my conversation with senior fellow Richard Reeves, author of an article entitled Stuck in a recent edition of Esquire magazine. Thanks for joining me again, Richard. Thank you. You opened the article with a personal reflection about being uh, in America, you're from Britain, and then talking about the essence of Americanism. What is the essence of Americanism? Well, it's something that you think about when you're becoming an American, and I'm sort of uh, on the journey towards becoming American, um, perhaps more so than you think about if you're born American and, and stayed, you know, been here all your life. Uh, and so I was, I was thinking a lot about that, and I came up with this idea of it as really being about making something of yourself, that idea of being self-made, right? So people say, he's a self-made man, or she's, she's really made something of herself. And the more I thought about that phrase, I thought actually that is kind of the essence of Americanism. It is that sense of making something of yourself. And almost every word in that sentence kind of counts, right? You're doing the one, you're making something, but you're making it of yourself, of your own kind of raw materials. And so, you know, so I end up concluding that the most important American manufactured products are Americans themselves. And that idea of kind of self-creation, control of your own destiny, actually strikes me as if you're going to find the essence of what it means to be American, that's, that, that's what, where I landed in terms of uh, my definition. It's also pretty cool, as listeners will, will, will uh, find out when they read the article, that you're actually born on the 4th of July. <laughs> I am. Who knew that would be so useful? <laughs> uh, but what do you mean then uh, by uh, referring to the title of the article, America is Stuck? Well, in conversations with Brookings colleagues, but also with some of the uh, Esquire team who we ended up working with, uh, it was one of the people on the Esquire team so I said, well, you talked a lot about social mobility and how people just aren't moving up and down, either from the bottom to the top or, or from the top. You know, we've talked a lot about politics. We've talked a lot about kind of the infrastructure. I've done quite a lot of work on place and neighborhood poverty and so on. And, and I just said it just, it, look, I just said out loud, it feels to me this sense of being stuck, right, of America being st sense of stuckness. And, and that kind of um, became a conversation which then led, led to the piece. So it wasn't, you know, I, I, I can't claim that I, I came to this as a result of some sort of very rigorous intellectual process. It was actually came sort of a gut feeling of like just this sense of it being stuck. And you read Tom Mann on, you know, Congress, you read Bell Sawhill on mobility, you read Bob Puentes on infrastructure. And so on. And there is this kind of, kind of sense of just the dynamism uh, that's been a characteristic of American history, just not not being there in the same way as before. And so this idea of just in so many dimensions feeling a bit stuck seemed to, to be a way to capture that feeling, which then led to the piece. You even referenced the fact that uh, geographical mobility is, is less than it used to be. So it's not just stuck in terms of our socioeconomic status, it's stuck all across the board. That's right. So it looks as if, particularly across state lines, that uh, there's been a, a drop in the number of people who are moving, all right? And so this, the whole idea of go west, some, then followed by the U-Haul or whatever. But that kind of sense that you have of kind of, so that Americans would literally move to opportunity, right? So it wasn't just this uh, social or economic uh, kind of mobility, it was geographical. And back in the end of the 19th century, people were just you know, incredibly geographically fluid, which is pretty recent. By comparison, European countries have become much more settled, right? Geographically, they're much more settled, people less likely to move. And more of a sense, actually, that, that jobs and opportunities should come to them 
right? So if there's a city in trouble, then somehow government or the policymakers are supposed to save that city rather than saying, well, maybe you need to go to where the cities uh, are growing now. And so actually, if they're, if we're right that there's been this drop in geographical mobility, that has implications for social and, and ec economic mobility as well. And, and at its worst, you see in concentrated, concentrated poverty neighbourhoods um, that people are, to quote uh, a book by the sociologist Pat Sharkey, stuck in place. And so you see that stickiness socially, economically, politically, geographically as a, as a kind of almost kind of prevailing feature of uh, 21st century America and one, one that troubles me. You write that Horatio Alger has a Canadian accent. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? So if you compare overall levels of intergenerational mobility, in other words, the extent to which where you're born determines where you end up on the, on the ladder, uh, and you compare the US to other countries, then you find that the chances of moving up from the bottom, from the bottom rung of the ladder, are higher in Canada than they are in the US. Uh, we kind of know that they're higher in some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, some studies find that it's higher in the UK, in my old country, you know, the, the land of Downton Abbey, having more upward mobility. Uh, and so the one of the most important pieces of work that, that, that we need to do, I think, as scholars is to be really looking very hard at the extent to which the idea of mobility and opportunity in America is, is a reality. And my sense of it coming here relatively new is that America is kind of coming to, to terms with a really very difficult truth about itself, which is that actually the, that level of mobility just isn't there, or at least isn't there anymore. And that, that's, that's, that's a very painful thing for America, right? It's, it's, it's difficult for all countries, but it's nearly an existential crisis for America. Well, another way then that Americans are stuck is, as you write, Americans are stuck in this belief that dynamism and upper mobility are still just as easy as they ever were, as long as you strive. But you say that's not the case. Well, that's right. And I think that that's where, that's where the kind of the myths can get in the way of progress sometimes. And so one of the things I love about America is this sense of openness. You know, people have their daughters and sons wear T-shirts saying future president, right? You obviously can't do that in the UK. And uh, my children cannot be future king or queen because it's hereditary. But even in other countries, that sort of sense of possibility um, doesn't exist. And so the idea of classlessness, the idea of openness is, is very precious. But at the same time, it can also act as a camouflage. It can actually, in a sense, act as a kind of rhetorical camouflage over what's a much more disturbing reality, which is that, in fact, your rank in American society is very strongly determined by your birth, the circumstances of your birth, place, race, and class. Um, and so we have to be very, very careful that the rhetoric of opportunity doesn't actually get in the way of a really uh, a scholarly understanding of the reality. And you also write in the essay uh, that, quote, inequality is a choice. How is it a choice? Well, if you look at, uh, so now we're just talking about income inequality, which of course is a huge topic um, of concern, you know, out on the uh, presidential campaign as well as in sort of seminar rooms here at Brookings. Um, the uh, extent to which there's a gap between rich and poor depends on whether you're looking at people's incomes before the government's done its work or after it's done its work. And so actually before government does its work, America is not particularly unequal, right? So what you call market inequality before taxes or transfers, actually the US is pretty similar to you know many of the other countries you would um, expect to be more equal, like Germany and so on. It's actually the fact that just the US tax and transfer system is less redistributive than other nations are. And there are some very good reasons for that, and there are complexities in making the comparison. Um, but I think the key point is that the extent to which there is this income inequality problem, we shouldn't think that it's a result of natural forces beyond control, that it is to a very large extent a political choice. It's a collective choice. 
because that choice is then rep- that is reflected in the policies that we have, particularly taxes and transfers. So it's not that America is particularly unequal. It's that the American political and economic system doesn't do very much to make society more equal by comparison to others. And that's a choice. Let's move on to some solutions. You identify a couple in the article. Can you talk to that? Sure. So one of the problems with having a... Uh, uh, such a kind of sweeping critique um, the essay is that then you're asked the, the, the very good question, which is the one you just asked now. But I think that there are real areas where we could see some progress. Um, one of the ones which is most interesting to me, and here I think about the work of other colleagues here, like kind of Beth, Beth Akers and so on, in our center is post-secondary education. It's pretty clear that the U.S. post-secondary education system now is reinforcing inequality rather than reducing it. Uh, and if anything, the trend is going in the wrong direction. And that's a very complex issue uh, to do with financing and access, skills, skill matching, um, and so on. And it's obviously overlaid with very difficult political issues around affirmative action and so on. But it is quite clear that there is a series, a suite of policies uh, in the area of kind of post-secondary, reducing barriers to entry, moving towards what one scholar has called kind of need affirmative action as opposed to either athlete or alumni affirmative action. So taking into account social and economic background in getting kids into college and so on and making a student debt more manageable, right? It seems as if that's where the place to go is. It's actually not the case that and uh, Beth Aker's work shows it's not the case that there's this huge debt crisis. It's more of a repayment issue and an earnings issue. So spread it out further, move towards an income contingent repayment system. That's one example. Another area where my my close colleague, Bell Sawhill, has done a lot of work is around helping people in family formation and uh, reducing the gaps in unintended pregnancy rates, which directly contribute to gaps in family instability and family formation rates. And that's a real a real error, I think. So kind of if you if you want to put it very simply, kind of pre-sex, post-secondary. So helping people who are going to be um, in uh, adult uh, romantic relationships for a long time before they marry now in America and, and basically making sure that everyone has access to uh, affordable, effective contraception is a hugely important step that, that could be taken. And then if you like at the other end of the life cycle of the child anyway, post-secondary and reducing access to that. So those two areas, it seems to me, are among the many where we could see more progress. I also mentioned the National Infrastructure Bank that Pointers and um, Goldston and others have mentioned, as well as a whole series of other policy areas. The the key challenge that's laid down in the essay, and actually I think in the whole series that Esquire has done, the Brookings, is really about intentionality. It's really about making real choices, right? Not not accepting uh, passively the economic and social trends that are upon us. And that comes back to this theme of being, being stuck and about agency, right? If we, We're back to where we started. If the essence of Americanism is making something of yourself, so the essence of America is, is a kind of society and a country that intentionally makes itself greater, right? Greatness doesn't come to countries. It, it's something that countries work for. And so there's a, there's a sense in which policy is very difficult. Not everything works. We have to work very hard to try and think what works and spend our money wisely. But the worst of all worlds is to kind of accept passively our fate. That strikes me as the most un-American idea of all. I'm going to leave it there. Well said. You can find the article stuck in Esquire magazine or visit this episode's show page on our website, brookings.edu slash bcp. I highly recommend this article and the rest of the Esquire piece featuring other Brookings scholars and ideas. Also, look for Richard's book from the Brookings Press later this year called Dream Hoarders, how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone else in the dust, why that is a problem, and what to do about it. Thanks again, Richard. Thank you, Fred. 
And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our new intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Remember to send your feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.